It is good to be back, 45, somewhere around there, and uh, uh, just because it fits better with uh, the, uh, the topic for next week and, and uh, what we'll be taking on in, in terms of 1 Timothy. Uh, lots of challenges this time around, but uh, tremendous blessings as well, and so I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to go, but, but equally thankful to have the opportunity to be back. It's good to see you all again, and uh, as, as I busily try to collect my thoughts up here after all the traveling, I, I hope that you'll be in prayer that we can, uh, we can discover truth for ourselves that'll actually last for this week, which began just moments ago as we shared the Lord's Supper together. That was beautiful. Thank you, Matt, for, for that clarity of the gospel, for sharing with us why and how it is that we're here and, and what should be important to us uh, this week as we take on the challenges that, that are before us. But that was just so, so refreshing. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace. And this is part 24 and entitled An Excellent Standing. And we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and just verse 13. Last week, Brian walked us through 1 Timothy 3.12 and brought us a much-needed reminder of, of what our time in Timothy is all about these days. We all know how easy it is to get bogged down in the details. Some people are more prone to that than others, but it's easy for all of us to get bogged down in the details, and, and so I'm glad that Brian took a walk on the wild side last week. In fact, he took the long view on our behalf, and he asked us to step back and see the forest for just a minute instead of just seeing the trees. He took us back to Psalm 105, you may remember, uh, and reminded us that that psalm is an historical account. In other words, it's an account of history, his story, God's story. And Brian reminded us that God's story is, the great, is a great meta-narrative of redemption. Brian talked about how often Psalm 105 uh, that says, or, or David says there, that God did this, and then God did that, and oh, this other thing over here. Well, God did that too. Over and over and over again, it talks about what God did. And, and in other words, redemption came to us not because we looked for it or worked for it or tried hard to find it. It came to us not because we deserved it. It came to us because God, in his grace, did it. He just did it, and then he offered it to us as a free gift, he offered it to anyone who would believe that when Jesus died, he died for you. He was buried. He rose again for you. That message of the gospel is core to what we believe, and our opportunities to share it are the most important opportunities we have in our lives. Brian then condensed the story by taking us from sea to shining sea. There we go. Uh, he talked about creation, corruption, covenant, Christmas, cross, and consummation. And I, I wish I had the time. If I were to take the time to actually walk you through all of that, uh, I wouldn't have time to say the things I'm supposed to say this morning. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. That was a, that was a very crisp, concise reconstruction, reminder of what God did, has done down through the ages. God hasn't had several plans. He's never failed in anything that he set out to do. Every one of God's plans has come to fruition because nobody can prevent him from succeeding. But the plan itself has grown and expanded and, and become more and more delightful over time. And I hope that you'll go back and listen to that for the sake of that reminder. Um, Brian told us that, that God's story 
is the main message of the Bible. That's really what the history of the Bible is. Uh, and then he refined that message for us when he said that the main message of the Bible is simply this. I don't have it up on the screen, but God's eternal plan to redeem a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That's really what God is about. And then he used uh, putting a puzzle together to illustrate what he was saying. And I'm not about, <laughs> I, I don't put puzzles together. It's just kind of a, a policy that I have uh, in my life. I, I feel badly because I see Faith doing it often. It's one of the things that she loves to do. I've just, I've always been, uh, my, my defense is that uh, I'm, my whole life is a puzzle that I'm trying to put together. I don't need to be spending time trying to, you know, make this picture out here. And I'm glad to be supportive of her. But Brian pointed out that when we put a puzzle together, we take long minutes looking at individual pieces. We do. We, you know, we turn it this way and we turn it that way. And uh, because we're, we're, uh, we're making our best effort, effort to see where they go. We want to know what this little piece contributes to the whole of the picture. And he's right. We, we don't know how the pieces in a puzzle fit together until we put them together, but we can only put them together when we have the time to look at them closely. I know that this is true, again, not because I enjoy putting puzzles together, but because I enjoy watching faith put puzzles together. I really, truly do. I love the patience that she shows that she, as she looks at the various pieces and the gift that she has to be able to turn it a couple of times and then say, ah, Right there. And sure enough, that's right. That is right where it goes. I am mystified by that. But we look at those pictures trying to figure out where they fit into the big picture, those puzzle pieces. And studying God's word is just like that. We go verse by verse through the Bible, and then we wonder where this verse fits into the big picture. That's really what we're after. That's because individual truths from God's word are just like individual pieces of a puzzle. We need to figure out where each verse fits in order to figure out the big picture the puzzle represents. And once we've seen the big picture, we can more readily understand what this individual verse con contributes to the larger picture, even though the individual verse sometimes seem to make no sense sitting there by itself. And then Brian pointed out that that's why we've been taking so much time talking about elders and deacons. We're doing that because we want to see where elders and deacons fit into the big picture, God's great plan of redemption for planet Earth. That's why we take individual truths from God's word and then take the time we need to figure out where they fit in the great plan of redemption. And while it is helpful, I believe, for all of us to see where elders and deacons fit into God's plan, it may be that you this morning are here this morning, but you're not an elder or a deacon in our church. In fact, the law of averages says that there's a high percentage of people that are not either a deacon or an elder in our church. And if that's the case, you might not be able to see where you fit into God's great plan of redemption as we work through 1 Timothy. And that's why we keep saying that even if you're not an elder or a deacon, and even if you're not at all interested in becoming an elder or a deacon, these verses apply to you. Because even if you don't care about elders and deacons, you should care about where you fit in this great puzzle that God's putting together. Because if you don't figure out where you fit into God's plan, you can't expect to receive the reward that he plans to give you for playing the part in his plan that he has planned for you to play. And if that sounds like devil talk, it's because it is. I intended it as that because I figure if I'm confused, then you are too. What I'm trying to say is when we all get to heaven, when you get to heaven, we will all wish with all our hearts that we had 
that we would have done what God was asking us to do during our time on planet Earth. I promise you that that's the case. You won't be concerned because you didn't spend as much time at the office. You, you won't be concerned that you didn't make as much money or never did get that uh, Series E Mercedes that you were hoping for. That's not going to be on the front of your mind at all. All that's going to matter when you stand before him is whether or not you did what he asked you to do. I know that's the way the scripture has it laid out in our time in heaven. Brian's closing point was that God uses families. And that means that God wants to use your family in some part of his plan. He wants to use your family in some part of his plan. And then Brian asked an absolutely vital question. Have you believed and embraced God's plan of redemption for you and your family? Believing in God's plan of redemption means believing that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, all according to the scriptures. That has to be an individual thing for you. And you have to help the the folks in your family make that same choice. Embracing God's plan of redemption means that once you and your family have believed, it's time to embrace God's plan of redemption to the point where you and your family get involved in helping other families, other individuals, and other families to believe in God's plan of redemption and embrace it. This is, this is discipleship. That's all we're talking about here. If you hadn't believed prior to last week when Brian spoke, then I hope you believed this week. And if you didn't believe again this week, then I hope what Matt had to say earlier this morning prompted you to believe this week so that you can get started on the rest of this. And if you had already believed prior to last week, then I hope you took some time this past week sorting out the part that God wants you and your family to play in his great plan of redemption, the part that you're supposed to be playing in helping other people to believe. And I say that because last week, Brian pointed out that deacons will be rewarded for their service, all right? And then he said that I would talk about that idea this week. I don't know how you knew that, but coincidentally, that is exactly what I'm here to talk about this week, the reward that comes for the service that the deacons offer. And uh, I hope I don't have to say again that it's going to apply to you, whether or not you're a deacon, whether or not you're an elder, whether or not you're an apostle, it's going to apply to you. And I suppose by now it's time to get at it, don't you think? I want you to know this morning that we'll be comparing Scripture with Scripture. And by that, I mean that uh, as we unpack this passage, that's not the right place to be. As we unpack this passage this morning, we'll be drawing on some things that we've learned together over the last few years. We'll look back at some things that we learned when we studied Acts together, and, and we'll dip into Hebrews and Ephesians as well as some things that we've looked at during our times together during communion. We'll be looking back this morning as we unpack this passage in 1 Timothy because I feel the need to find and and push the reset button as our church faces the ongoing challenges that lie ahead of us. And uh, we always begin to unpack a passage by reading it together. So if you would, stand with me, and we will read aloud together as you're able from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the... 
In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. You can take your seats confident of the fact that God was talking to you when we were reading that passage together. Back when we studied the book of Acts together, we looked at Acts chapter 6. And, uh, and that's where we found the story of the choice of the first deacons, the first deacons that began to serve. And as Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, that choice of, of the deacons there in, in that first church became the premise for why we have deacons here in our church as well as elders. That's the foundation for that. And uh, having said that, if you were here when we studied Acts, you know that that story became the first of the stories from Acts. I remember that as we came to it. It was the first of the stories of Acts that we could actually identify with because the church of Jerusalem had been facing intense persecution. And as a church in America, we haven't ever really faced persecution for what we believe. But in the story from Acts chapter 6, instead of facing the problem of persecution, the Jerusalem church faced a problem with some of their members who were feeling disenfranchised, mistreated, and, and overlooked. And that was a good moment for me when we were studying Acts back, to get, back then, because after all the time that we spent studying Acts together, it was finally there in Acts chapter 6 that we saw the church at Jerusalem facing a problem with which we could identify. And if you were here for those studies in Acts, you know that the problem they faced that day with the believers, uh, who were there were believers there in the church who were complaining, and, well, that's the kind of problem that, we, that can destroy a church in the 21st century or at the very least cripple it. Back then, they faced the same kind of problem that we face with you know, the complaints that come our way sometimes. But you see, nothing else that Satan tried Nothing that Satan did to that first church in Jerusalem had, had worked to any degree at all in terms of stopping them from spreading the word, from sharing the gospel. The believers had been threatened with punishment, but the threats didn't stop them from sharing the good news about Jesus. The threats didn't stop them. The arrests didn't stop them. Doing jail time didn't stop them. The beatings didn't stop them. And we said back then that nothing else had worked to keep the first followers from telling others about Jesus. Nothing worked. And that's when we began to wonder if maybe Satan would catch on to the idea that perhaps a, a simpler approach would be more beneficial for him. Back then we said that Satan works in our lives in four primary ways as he tries to keep us from being effective for God. He will destroy us if he can. And if he can't destroy us, he'll settle for defeating us. But if he can't defeat us, then he'll settle for discouraging us. And if he can't discourage us, he'll settle for distracting us. He seeks to destroy, defeat, discourage, or distract us. Because each of those things is less threatening than the one before it, but any of those things will take us out of the work and make us ineffective. By the way, you may notice that I made them all Ds, but that's not to prove that I can do anything that Brian can do. That's to prove that Brian was not the only one who was hit in the head when he was younger. That's, I'm just saying. Having said that, let me point out that when Satan applied those D tactics to the first church, he discovered that he was unable to destroy those first followers of Jesus. And clearly, he was unable to defeat them. 
Satan even wasn't really able to discourage them. So it seems to have occurred to him that maybe the people who were talking about Jesus would stop talking about Jesus if he could just distract them, just get them off topic, get them making something more important to them than the gospel was during that time. And that's what he settled for. He tempted some of the members to complain about a situation they were facing because he reasoned if he could get them to complain about the trials that they were facing, then maybe they would just choose to deal with the problems in the church and then shut up. I mean, maybe they'd just then stop talking about Jesus to the people that surrounded them. So that's what Satan tried. He got some of the widows to complain about problems with the distribution of food, but as those complaints arose... The church of the first followers there in Jerusalem didn't miss a beat. They responded by choosing seven men to take care of the issue that had prompted the complaining. Those men that the the people that the church chose to be deacons took care of the problem. And according to the scripture, it actually says this daily, daily in the temple and from house to house. Every person who called himself or herself a follower of Jesus continued to preach and teach the good news about Jesus. They didn't skip a beat. Those first Jesus followers were unstoppable. And I hope your heart was inspired as mine was back then. So having said all that about the choosing of the first deacons, we should take the time to point out that one of those men who was chosen to be a deacon was a man named Stephen. He was not an apostle, and he was not an elder in the church. He was a deacon, a servant, a man who was going to wait on tables as Brian pointed out when he told us that that's the root meaning of the word deacon. Stephen was a man who had been tapped to take care of the physical needs of the church. But Stephen was a man of undeniable quality, of unstoppable passion and power. And while he served faithfully and enthusiastically in his role as a deacon, he was not content to simply serve tables. In fact, when we studied Acts, we learned that Stephen used his platform as a deacon to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And the moment came when he was about to face more serious consequences for that choice than any other Jesus follower had had to face up to that point in the book of Acts. I want to tell you that story this morning. So this is the part where I say, and with that background, this is the story from God's Word, from Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen, you'll remember, was one of the men chosen to be a deacon in that church of the first followers there in Jerusalem. And it's important that we see that the deacons had different responsibilities from the elders, but they were remarkable men just the same. Stephen, in fact, was a man who was full of God's grace and power. And he performed great signs and wonders and miracles just as Peter had been doing. This is where we need to point out that Stephen was drawing a lot of attention because of his teaching and the the miracles that he was performing, the things that he was doing, and not all of the, the attention that he got was good. In fact, there were some men who called themselves the synagogue of the freed men. This was a fairly widespread movement during the the early church, and freedmen synagogues could be found in Cyrene, which was in present-day Libya and Alexandria, which was in Egypt, as well as in Cilicia, which is in present-day Turkey. And the freedmen were also camped out in Cyprus, and there were even synagogues as far away as Asia, synagogues of the freedmen. 
The synagogue of the freedmen, the freedmen themselves took exception to Stephen's teaching and preaching, and, and they'd gotten into the habit of arguing with Stephen, but the Spirit of God gave Stephen such powerful wisdom that they couldn't even begin to stand up to them. To, to him. This lowly deacon was shutting them down every time they had a conversation. So these freedmen got together and found some men who were willing to bear false testimony, to, uh, to, to speak lies in court against Stephen. These false witnesses then brought the charge to the Sanhedrin that Stephen had been speaking blasphemy against Moses and even God. The Sanhedrin responded to this by having Stephen arrested so that he could face his accusers. They publicly accused Stephen in a trial of speaking against the law of Moses in the temple. They even said that they had heard Stephen say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses had handed down. It wasn't true, of course, but that's why they had to hire men who were willing to lie. The members of the Sanhedrin watched Stephen very intently as these accusations were brought against him. And they noticed that he was completely unflustered by, by what the, the freedmen had to say, what the false witnesses had to say. In fact, they all agreed that he looked a whole lot more like an angel than the demon that they were making him out to be. And that's when the high priest spoke up and asked Stephen if the charges that had been brought against him were true. And it's important that we understand here that, that these, these charges that were brought against Stephen were capital crimes in first century Israel. The punishment for blasphemy was death. And remember, these are the very men who had condemned Jesus to death via a trial only a few weeks before. So when they asked Stephen if the charges were true, Stephen was in real danger. And that's when this story begins to turn, turn strange. The high priest has just asked Stephen if he's guilty of blasphemy, a, a crime it's punishable by death, and Stephen responded by telling the Sanhedrin a story. In fact, he told the story of Israel's history to the most educated Jewish men of his day. He told them a powerful story that begins with Abraham and winds its way through Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph until the very time of Moses. Stephen used a story from God's word to defend himself and to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah. Stephen had a lot to say in that sermon, and, and we don't have time to go through all of it, but the main point that he made was that Moses and all the prophets had foretold that the Messiah would come, but the Israelites were consistently in the habit of rejecting what the prophets had to say. And that's when things got really heated. Stephen accused the members of the Sanhedrin of being stubborn when he told them that they were more like Gentiles than Jews when it came to listening to God. He raised his voice and said, your ancestors persecuted the prophets and they even killed the ones who foretold that the Messiah would come. And now that the Messiah has come, you've even killed him. You received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. And that was pretty much all the Jewish leaders were willing to listen to. They became furious. They began to grind their teeth. But Stephen, controlled by the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, Stephen said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Sanhedrin covered their ears and began yelling at the top of their voices. 
They rushed Stephen. They dragged him out of the hall and out of the city and began to stone him to death. And while all of this was happening, a young man named Saul took care of their coats. Stephen began to pray as the stones began hitting him. And as his life drained away, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. After that, he fell onto his, onto his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having prayed like that, he fell flat on the ground and breathed his last. And that's the story from God's Word. Now, as we said earlier, these first followers of Jesus, these first followers of that, in that first church in Jerusalem were being persecuted. But even though they were being persecuted... Oh, even though they were being persecuted, they refused to ask God to protect them from the threats of the Jewish authorities. They didn't ask God to defend them in any way. They didn't ask God to defend them in any way. Instead, they simply asked God for the boldness that they would need as they kept speaking about Jesus despite the threats. Instead of asking for protection, they asked for boldness. And God responded by giving them the boldness that they had asked for. But there's a part of my heart that wants to think that it would have been nice if he had protected them as well. I, I mean, this was, after all, the first church in history. And you would think that God would absolutely cherish them. You would think that Jesus would protect his bride from anyone and everyone who would want to hurt his bride. But to the casual observer, the death of Stephen makes it look like Jesus doesn't even really care. After all, Jesus had been working miracles through Stephen. So for Jesus, protecting Stephen from the Sanhedrin would have been as simple as a card trick. And yet Stephen, a simple deacon from the church at Jerusalem, was killed by an angry mob. So you have to wonder, does Jesus really care? Or are his followers just expendable to him? Is Jesus so focused on making sure that the people, that new people hear the good news of the gospel that he's willing to haphazardly risk the lives of the people who are already following him? Is that the attitude that he takes? That's an important question. And it deserves a campful answer. So to get to that answer, I'm going to play a simple soundbite. And I just, I, I just want you to do what you need to do when you hear the sound, okay? Listen. Okay, maybe, maybe I wasn't clear. I, I'm going to play this simple soundbite, and, and I just want you to do what you need to do when you hear the soundbite, okay? Here we go. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> good, that was, that was excellent, and in fact, kind of what I was hoping for, but perhaps I, I can clear things up by saying that when you hear, when you hear the opening strains of the, of the Hallelujah Chorus, it's traditional to stand to your, it's too late now, I'm not going to play it again, but it's traditional to stand to your feet to honor the king of kings. That's something that's become tradition. And that's because of something that happened way back in 1750, believe it or not. It's about a 325-year-old tradition. When King George II was the king of England. 
And uh, I want to take some time to talk about that, and we'll compare that thing that, that King George did with something that, that we know about the tabernacle of Moses so that we can fully appreciate something that Stephen said the day that he was martyred. Let's start with King George, who obviously was a, a sort of a fancy sort of a fellow. I hope you know that kings sit on their thrones, like the one in the picture, or on the most exalted place in whatever building or room they happen to find themselves. For example, if the king of England attends a concert, he sits in the royal box. This is actually at the, uh, at the Bolshoi, but it, it's, a, it's a royal box nonetheless. Uh, and he sits in the royal box, the place that's set aside for only the king. You can't pay enough money to sit in the royal box if you were to attend. Others who attend the concert are free to sit wherever they can afford to sit, and they're free to remain seated until the moment when the king enters the concert hall and appears up there in the royal box, usually to trumpet fanfare. That's the way it works. And at the moment that the king enters the hall, every person in the hall is required to stand to their feet. Don't, do, don't. Every person in the hall is required to stand to their feet out of respect for the king. Then once the king sits down, they're free to sit down. So their standing is a sign of their respect for their king. And that's the way it was for King George uh, II of England way back in 1750. And that brings us to the soundbite that, that I, we just listened to. You see, back in 1750, King George II of England attended a concert where there was a performance of Handel's Messiah, which is the larger you know, concert thing that you were listening to, like a giant cantata is what it was. Uh, <laughs> he attended that one of the concerts, and as the strains of the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, rang out and proclaimed Jesus to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King George II is said to have stood to his feet out of respect and reverence for Jesus. And of course, the audience stood with him. The king was on his feet. And that's why today we still stand to our feet whenever we hear the strains of the Hallelujah Chorus being played anywhere in the world except the Ozarks. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I'm sorry. I really didn't expect you to know that, and that's kind of what I was hoping for, so that in your embarrassment, you can hear the rest of this truth. And I don't know, maybe you... Re no, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I just, I, that's how good I am at embarrassing people. I, I did it without trying. But when the king enters the room... The audience stands until the king sits down. And if the king chooses to stand to his feet again, everyone stands with him. We stand to show our respect for the king. But the sure thing is this. The king is never required to stand in anyone's presence. The king is never required to stand in anyone's presence. And that remained true throughout history until King George II stood out of respect for the king of kings and Lord of Lords. You tracking with me? Well, at least that was his enthusiasm. Are you tracking with me? Yeah, Yo, all right then. That's, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm sorry to keep waking you like this. But then stay with me as we go, stay with me as we go to the tabernacle of Moses for a few minutes. When we studied Hebrews together, maybe you remember that book that we, that we took so much time with. Well, when we studied Hebrews together, we learned that the tabernacle was, was one of the most lavishly and, and luxuriously furnished buildings in all of history. Most of the furniture there was covered in beaten, solid gold. But remarkably, despite how lavish the furnishings there were, there was one piece of, of furniture that was noticeably missing. 
there was not a single chair in the tabernacle. And as we learned when we studied Hebrews, there was no chair for a very good reason. Hebrews 10.11 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. There was no chair in the temple, no chair in the tabernacle, because the priests had no time to sit down. They were always too busy offering those sacrifices that could never take away sin. But look at what the next three verses say about Jesus. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since, then, that, since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus made one sacrifice for sins forever and then sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because he's the high priest who has finished his work. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And according to Hebrews, he is now seated on his own throne at the father's right hand waiting for the moment when the kingdom is complete. And just for extra measure, if you recall, at the end of every message, I ask you to stand in the presence. You recall that? I ask you to stand in the presence because that's how we show our respect when we pray. So you got it? Let's try to put all of that together to see if we can bring this message home. Jesus is seated on his throne at God's right hand. And if we're followers of Jesus, then one, way, one day we will stand in his presence with the multiplied millions who will bow before him and then stand around his throne. But let's not forget right now that we're asking the question, does Jesus really care about us today? Because as we come to the story this morning, we know that God has been working miracles through the apostles. So preventing persecution would have been little more than a card trick for God. And in fact, preventing the death of Stephen would have been an equally simple matter for God, and yet Jesus just seems to have let him die. They had prayed for boldness instead of praying for protection. And Jesus gave Stephen boldness, and then he didn't protect him. Now, we're not facing the threat of death or even persecution, but does it matter to Jesus today that, our, that we're being ridiculed and, and shamed because of our witness? Does it matter to him that so many people have been martyred because of their faith in him? Does it matter to him that more people were martyred during the 20th century than were martyred in all of the first 19 centuries combined? Does it matter to him as he sits there on his throne, as Hebrews pointed out? I'm here to tell you this morning that it does matter to him. And the story that we just listened to from God's word proves that. Remember what happened in those last few moments as Stephen's life was ending? In those last few moments of his life as he stood before the Sanhedrin, the group of men who would in a few minutes drag him outside of the city to stone him to death? You remember what happened? God opened Stephen's eyes and gave him a glimpse into heaven itself. Now remember, according to Hebrews, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And what Stephen saw that day is staggering because he doesn't say, as Hebrews says, I see Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. Instead, he says, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. 
the last moments of Stephen's life, just before he'd be stoned to death, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords stood to his feet in the heavenly throne room, both out of respect for his humble servant, Stephen, and as a powerful gesture to welcome him home. So it may seem like Jesus is cavalier and, and careless when it comes to his church, as though he's willing to throw followers, his followers away for the sake of one more member, but the death of Stephen proves otherwise, as the King of Kings stands to his feet to welcome him home. And I wonder what today, what would it be like if we could invite Stephen here as a guest speaker? I, I guess we just did, but if we could invite him here as a guest speaker in the same way that we have missionaries come in sometimes and, and, and tell us about their experiences in ministry. I, as we interviewed him, we might say to him, you know, Stephen, uh, that last sermon you preached, that, that was really powerful, but the Sanhedrin didn't like it, and, and the consequences for you were, well, lethal. So Stephen, if you had it to do over, do you think you might choose to just keep your mouth shut this time? How would Stephen be likely to respond? Would he look at us and say, well, you know, you're, you're right. <laughs> they didn't like what I had to say. And I wonder if he'd then add, and, and if I had it to do over, I, I think I'd just keep my mouth shut. I'd... Is that how you imagine that conversation going down? I don't think so. Because in the last moments of his life, Stephen saw Jesus, the King of kings, the King of glory, stand to welcome him to his eternal reward. And if he had it to do over again, I'm absolutely confident he would say, despite the danger and the awful way it turned out, if I had it to do over, I'd do it all again in a heartbeat. Because after all, the King was standing for me when I got home. Let's not forget here this morning that we've been talking about the qualifications of a deacon over these last several weeks. And that makes me want to remind you again that Stephen was not an apostle. He was not a prophet, a pastor, teacher, a bishop, an overseer, a shepherd, or an elder in his church. Stephen was a deacon. And in that light, look at verse 13 again. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. You see what that says? It says that those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. Stephen was a deacon, a man chosen to wait tables. And as we've often pointed out, <coughs> as we've often pointed out, and yet at the end of his life in ministry, he saw the King of Kings and Lord of Lords standing to welcome him home. And I don't mean it as a play on words, but that is an excellent standing. Wouldn't you agree? Stephen's experience that day. And on top of that, as his life was ended, ending, Jesus reassured Stephen of, and, and us of the, the, the truth of, a, of an old hymn that we sing. I, I plan to sing it for you, but I'm just going to quote it. Sometimes the day seems long. Our trial's hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair, but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face 
all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. So I'm left to ask you this morning, as I've often asked you, what does that make you want to do? Well, in answer to that question, I have to ask myself, what if the spread of the gospel had depended on people like me instead of on people like that lowly deacon, Stephen? It's an important question because today the spread of the gospel does depend on me. So that leaves me asking myself, am I in the habit of allowing things that frighten me to stop me from doing what God has asked me to do? Are there moments when I choose what I want for my life over what God wants for my life? Are there times when I'm just too tired to do what God wants me to do? Are there moments when I cherish my own personal rights more than I cherish God's will for my life? Stephen didn't let any of those things get in the way of doing God's will. And that brought him an excellent standing and great assurance in his faith. We need to be clear, though, that Stephen's reward didn't come to him because he was persecuted and then martyred. Stephen's reward came because he remained faithful to God's cause and God's kingdom as he continued to share Christ in his community and around the world despite the persecution and danger. And if I want a similar outcome, I must be willing to approach danger and fear and fatigue and my own personal rights as Stephen approached those things. Now, I'm not looking to be a hero or to have my name immortalized, but I'll tell you something that I know. Someday we're going to be with Jesus forever, and his story will preoccupy all of eternity. And that means that throughout eternity, we'll hear more and more about how he called out a people for his name from among all the people groups on planet Earth. And I want more than anything else in the world to have a moment when he calls my name and my wife's name and that he tells the part of the story that he accomplished through us. I believe that's the moment when she and I, when Faith and I will either hear, well done, you've been good and faithful servants, or frankly, Jay and Faith, I wish you had listened to me more often and played the part I designed you to play. I wish that you had not allowed other things to take priority in your lives. And if you're asking me to choose between those two things, I want to hear him say, well done. I want to hear him say that my wife and I have been good and faithful servants to him throughout this short time that we have to serve. It's not too late, you know. I could play the part that he's designed for me. I could play the part that he's designed me for, just like Stephen played the part that God designed for him. And you could play the part that he's designed you for, just like Stephen played the part designed for him. And if we were to be faithful in even the small things that he asks us to do, we could hear him say someday, well done. You've been a good and faithful servant, just like he said to Stephen. So let me ask you again. What does that make you want to do? In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, I pray that today you would torque our hearts that you would tighten down on my heart and my life 
And help me, God, to stand and serve and, and be faithful in even the small things that you ask me to do. Thank you for my wife and the way she's joined me in that pursuit. And God, I pray that you'd continue to direct and continue to open, open your will and your way to us so that we can pursue it with all our hearts in anticipation of the reward. I pray the same thing, God, for everyone that's here this morning. I pray that you'd wash over our hearts. You'd wash over us as individuals. You would wash over our church and revive us, God, to put back at the center the privilege that we have of serving you in making sure that other people in our community and around the world hear the good news about Jesus. Thank you for including us in your plan. And God, teach us to live that out in the short time that we have here as we anticipate a good standing in eternity. Thank you, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. And amen. Well, we're headed out that door, and, and by now you should have sorted out already what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Find somebody. Talk to them about Jesus. Don't let anything get in your way. Don't let anything prevent you from being as diligent as you can be in making sure that other people have the opportunity. And in the meantime, as your coach or whatever it is I am up here, all that's left for me to say is, ready? Wait a minute. Boy, you guys. Mm. Let, me, let me wake up one more time. Just one more. Ready? Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>